0: Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast about history and how to think about history. For more on this episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can find links and readings related to today's podcast, comment on the conversation, and sign up for our newsletter. And consider becoming a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room, a community of Patreon supporters. Hello, this is another of our conversations on intellectual humility and historical thinking. Today's guest is Leah Shopko. She is professor of history at Indiana University in Bloomington. She is a historian of the Middle Ages, specifically of medieval France, and she began her career by studying the history written by medieval chroniclers, which led to her book, History and Community, Norman Historical Writing in the 11th and 12th Centuries. Since then, she has also edited one of those historical texts, The History of the Counts of Gein and Lord of Ard. Interest in medieval historiography morphed, naturally or unnaturally, depending on your point of view, into an interest in the pedagogy of history. She has written numerous articles on the topic and was the founding co-director and principal investigator of the History Learning Project at Indiana University. Most recently, she's combined both of these interests in her book, The Saint and the Count, a case study for reading like a historian, which she and I discussed in episode 203 of this podcast. This is her second appearance on Historically Thinking, and as is always the case with these conversations, unlike the typical conversations on Historically Thinking, uh, we will be following a set format of questions, though both of us reserve the right to wander off that set path. Uh, Leah, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: So how did you first come to like history?
1: Well, um, I read uh, Josephine Tay's Daughter of Time. And if you have ever read that mystery, you know that she was trying to solve the mystery of the little princes in the tower who were probably murdered by their uncle, Richard III. But um, she, it really gripped me. I thought, wow, this is cool. So history as a detective story, I think, is, is the way a lot of people get drawn into history.
0: About how, about when was that, that you read um, D- uh, Josephine, Ta- Daughter of Time?
1: I have to admit that I was a monomaniac because I read it in high school.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, I knew, I thought at that point, oh, yes, I want to be a medieval historian. This is not a typical story. <laughs> Most people stumble into history later on or are drawn into history later on. Um, but it had some real advantages because when I decided I not only wanted to be a historian, but wanted to be a medieval historian and got to college saying that my, um, I was immediately advised that I needed to have Latin, French, and German. So I actually took them in college, which was tremendously helpful when I got to graduate school because I'd That's already done cool. the languages.
0: Saves a lot of time. I, I often think that probably the medievalists should just not be allowed to actually do anything other for two years other than just study languages
1: well i was fortunate that i had excellent french education in high school um six Mm -hmm. years of it and um, so i didn't have to do french german was (laughs) a surprise
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, so that's a very that is a strange story because not you basically at the moment you decide you went the moment you decided you liked history, you decided to become a medieval historian, you went off to undergraduate, to already as an undergraduate, decided to pursue a doctorate in history. Sort Is of. That, I, I, yeah. My
1: undergraduate major was in history and medieval studies.
0: Okay. So you were an early, you were a very advanced specialist?
1: In a sense. I'm not sure. You know, the thing is, it's sort of like teaching children to read. You can teach mm-hmm. children to read at four, but mm-hmm. the kids who learn at seven or eight read with just as much facility by the time they're nine. So, uh-huh. you know, I think yeah. it, it's helpful in some ways, but I don't think it actually puts you that far ahead of the, the crowd, as it were.
0: So you ended up uh, focusing on... um Northern France, is that right? I mean, I mean, that's, that's your scholarly interest. And, um, so when did that develop? When did you develop this sort of focus on Northern France? And then qu- quickly, as I looking at the CV, you quickly developed an interest in focusing on the historiography, on the kind of history that Norman, you know, chroniclers, monks were writing about the, their, their people.
1: Mm-hmm. So I was very interested in literature mm-hmm. and thought, that I actually couldn't do it. And I remember saying to my undergraduate advisor, who was wonderful, um, Jerry Bond, um, and he worked on Provençal Poetry, that watching him analyze a poem was like watching a magician pull a rabbit out of a hat. I could see the hat. I could put my hand into the hat. And I remember saying to him, but I can't find that rabbit. <laughs> and um, so, you know, now it, it seemed, literature seemed very mysterious to me, um, but I loved it. I love story. I think that also is what draws a lot of people to history is that history's narrative. It's full of stories. And so, reflecting on it, I don't think this was a conscious decision, but I think I was drawn into historiography because it's a combination in many ways of history and literature. And so I bring to my analysis of Chronicles some literary sensibilities, although I will say this, there are lots of people who work on Chronicles. And some of them work on chronicles from the lit end and some people from the history end. And when I'm reading somebody's work, I can always tell which end they're coming to mm-hmm. it from because basically I'm a historian in the way I think about things. I'm not a literature
0: person. Mm-hmm. So could you explain that a little bit for, for listeners who might not understand what distinction do you see uh, between the two?
1: Ah. Uh, So if I can pull Sam Weinberg in, Sam Weinberg is a cognitive psychologist who studied how people do history. And he's done an enormous number of uh, think alouds with people where he'll have them read uh, materials and comment about how they're thinking about it. And he's had historical experts do it. He's had students do it. He's had uh, people, scholars from other disciplines do it. And our approach to the text is fundamentally different is what he found. So he gave a text to a literary scholar who read through it, did the think aloud, got to the end and said, oh, that's who's writing it. I think literature people are interested uh, sometimes in the same things I am, in the way things something is put together, but in the kind of story that's being told. They're less concerned on the whole with, The environment in which that story is being told, people to whom it's being told, the work that that text is doing in the world. So when people write a history, they're they're not just writing it because they're interested. They are interested, we hope. Otherwise, it's terrible. But they want that writing to do some work, uh, Mm. to form often... Uh, an idea of how people are thinking about the world. And that's what I'm interested in. I'm interested in um, the the people who write the text, the world that they live in, the impact that they expect their work to have on those people, their purposes for writing. And literary scholars are interested in different things on the whole, although I mm-hmm. find their work very, very useful.
0: Um, I mean, this gets back to, one of the most famous essays of early twentieth-century medieval studies, uh, Tolkien's "The Monsters and Their Critics" about mm-hmm. Beowulf, um, because uh, I mean, I I remember back in medieval Latin, uh, you know, sort of our our trots, the sort of, one of the exercises that we we're doing is translating some, you know, pretty simple uh, medieval chronicles, and they're not mm-hmm. exciting. Yeah, uh, um, they're not, and. My temptation, I think this is sort of, I mean, this is the naive, this is sort of the first, sort of first, necessary first approach was just seeing them as a mine for facts on such and such a day. This happened at this place in the monastery on the Rhine and there was a terrible blackness and there was a, and there was death and blah, blah, blah. And, and then, of course, you, then sometimes people say, well, these are uncertain facts and you know, they're unreliable. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was just, I was thinking of chronicles as a mine to find facts uh, just as the way Tolkien was criticizing people who were using Beowulf not for the story as he was a literary person he wanted to know about the story they were looking at it as a mine of what it was early medieval culture like um which is always you know i at least when i read Beowulf that's my first that's exactly the, that's exactly the question i'm asking myself uh cuz i'm not a literary person i think that's what you're you're driving at too here
1: yeah, so you, you, you think you're a historian or something,
0: huh? <laughs> yeah, I think I actually am. Um, and, uh, you know, we are interested in context. Uh, we can't help it. Um, but I was thinking that uh, one of the problems when you're a grad student and you're reading these chronicles is at the same time, you're being inculcated into a very different way of doing history. And uh, none of these chaps who are writing the chronicles... Uh, have read, uh, have ever read anything by by Hegel or von Ranke, or you know, or you know, a- any of the great uh, French historians of the the Annal school, or on and on and on. So it's really you have to you're recovering a very different historical sensibility when you approach them, and I would think that it's kind of almost doubly hard uh, being shaped as you are in one sensibility and one sort of. Um, dare I say, a pseudo-scientific or semi-scientific approach, and then, appro- then going to a very different way of approaching history.
1: I think that's true. But um, part of reading them is asking the question, what are they trying to do? And asking it from the perspective of recognizing that these are smart people. And I think as a medievalist, that's one of the things that, that is hardest to convey, certainly to my students, um, <laughs> and perhaps to readers as well, that they don't do the things that they do because they're dumb. Yeah. Um, they're, they're doing it in a way that um, makes sense to them. And when you're reading a medieval chronicle, you were reading the writing of... Of one of the most highly educated people in that world, yeah. Um, because of all the people who know Latin, most of them are never going to write anything. Mm-hmm. So you have to, you have to, you have to sit with it and and think about it and try to figure out what this person is is trying to do and sometimes that's more fun than others i mean there are certain chronicles that well annals really that are just you Mm -hmm. know this happened on this date and this happened on this date and this happened on this date and you know you want to gnaw your arm off because they're so dumb yeah 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 but Uh, um but
0: at the same time that fellow is trying to memorialize something he wants mm -hmm. to remember and which is one of the most i mean historians would say this but the desire to have things remembered, it fills gravi- It fills the graveyard with tombstones. Um, mm-hmm. it, it is a very powerful human need, uh, and he's able to take his his schooling uh, and that fundamental drive to remember and turns it even to a boring chronicle or an, uh, you know annal. That's that's really important.
1: It is, but I also want to spend an awful lot of time the things that they they write are really interesting and sometimes they're funny and sometimes they're hilarious. Um, In the chronicle that I worked out uh, most recently, which is the um, uh, history, the chronicle of of, uh, of, um, Andra by William Andra, um, I had been working with a printed edition um, from the uh, 17th century that had been created as reading for the training of priests by a French scholar, Dasheri. And I was looking at the manuscript from which Dasheri set his text um, and realized that he had omitted something. And I was sitting in the Bibliotheque Nationale, and when I figured out what he had admitted, omitted, I laughed out loud. People turned around and looked at me because the story that he had left out was a story of one of the monks at this monastery going to the abbot. There's a lot of tension in the monastery, going to the abbot and asking for permission to wear underwear. What the heck? Okay. And the abbot says no. And the monk turned around and showed the abbot that he was being obedient In other words, he moved the abbot. You know, what the heck is going on here? Um, And I eventually wrote an article about it. But when something like that happens, I think you get down to recognizing just how completely the people who occupy these texts are humans, like Mm -hmm. us, doing weird stuff sometimes, sometimes being obedient and compliant. But at other times being their own weird human selves. And and that is addictive. When yeah. you come across that, it's just, wow, this is what I want to be doing.
0: I I you've edited the text. I think you're the first person I've recorded one of these conversations with who's done that. Um, mm-hmm. that's something that I don't I guess medievalist we learn from the medievalists learn from the classicists. Um mm-hmm. or maybe they or both were doing it at the same time, but it's not something that say a historian of early 19th century America does. Um, I don't think there's any need to do it at least, or what, when they say they're doing it, they're not doing what you do. So could you briefly describe that? Um, I, I have to, I have a reverential awe for it since uh, I think in medieval Latin 540, uh, a professor who I thought was very old at the time, but I realized is younger than I am now had said that that was, that was the highest grade mark of scholarship was to provide an edited text for future generations of scholars. And so I've always, you know, I approach it sort of, you know, with a little, with a bowed and respectful head.
1: Oh, you shouldn't. It's, it's, sometimes it's really tedious work.
0: Oh, well, that I know. That's why I've managed to, that's why I very carefully avoided it, I think. Yes. Yeah.
1: So, well, in the case of the text that I've edited, um, there aren't a lot of manuscripts, but I think what's important for people to understand is before the printing press, every copy of the book had to be made by hand. And what people who were copying the text were doing wasn't always what we would do if we were going to copy a text. That is, they weren't always copying it verbatim, although often they were. Sometimes they were just copying the excerpts that they wanted. Sometimes they would throw things in that interested them. Um, but um, in this pro so my text has, the text that I edit only has three and a half manuscripts. I'm sort of working on something that has about 11 or 12. And oh, cool. They, yeah, they're all so they they all have variations because different copyists will do different things. You know, a copyist might go away and have have a break and come back and end up starting at a different place. They'll leave something out or might recopy something. Um, they drop a might, word. They
0: drop a line. They you know that's, that, those. And there's all these all have nice Latin tags for these various things, so you can feel very pretentious when you tell your parents what you're doing.
1: <laughs> right. But um and and then they may spell things differently. So yeah. all of my manuscripts actually are uh were copied at a time when people were beginning to think about copying text the way we would. But even so they tend to spell things in latin the way they spell them so recovering the what the original spelling was um, is it can be sometimes you're guessing there's a tendency to standardize latin editions uh, not everybody does it if you're working from one manuscript then usually you don't do that. You just leave it the way it was. But if you're working from multiple manuscripts, you have to decide how you're going to standardize it. But I will but say, also, uh, can I just uh-huh.
0: can I ask? I uh-huh. mean, but when you standard if you standardize all those different, but then that I mean, I can see why you want to do that. But for certain scholars who are interested in the way that people spoke Latin, there might be some interesting clues uh, by the spelling. I mean, that's kind of how it works in English, right? Uh, okay. You can tell you can you can get a hint of a person's dialect from how they quote-unquote misspell there is no real spelling in the 18th century say um you can get a hint of how they spoke and that's very valuable maybe not for me but for someone else
1: well absolutely that's that that is the case so um i don't want to get technical here because people will just go to sleep but um sure you know but you but and you can do that in the apparatus sometimes but then so the apparatus would be the part that tells you what all the different manu- the different manuscripts said but there will be one text above uh, but if there's a lot of variation then pretty soon you're you're not actually helping the reader understand the text but the other part that I would Raise. And one of my teachers in graduate school said this. He said he always liked to read a text from the manuscript version because the manuscript version was a, was a working document. When we create an edited text, often we're creating something that no person in the Middle Ages ever read. <laughs> we're trying to get back to what the original looked like. But that wasn't what people were reading. They were reading their copies for, you know, for better or for worse, whatever those copies had in them. Um, And so if you wanted, for instance, to understand how monks at Mont Saint-Michel read a text, you would want to read their manuscript. You'd want to know what they were actually reading and not Mm -hmm. what some kind of Reconstructed original looks
0: like. Let's get back to the the sort of the main focus of our conversation. And I was, um, and I think you're touching on this already. But what um, what have some of the most important questions uh, been that have perplexed you, and that the ones that you felt the need to answer? And what are some of your best or favorite answers to your best questions?
1: Ah, that's actually a a difficult question. I really want to understand what medieval people are doing when they write history, because apart from ensuring that things are remembered, they're actually, as you suggested, doing something very different from what we're doing. Um, And and you're right, they haven't read all the history theorists that we have read, um, and their methodologies are very different often. you know, What is it they think they're doing? Why are they writing the way they're writing? And if I can give an example of the Chronicle of Andre, which is a text I love from which this story about the monk mooning his abbot comes. Um, This is a monastery that as far as we know, had no history written before William sat down to write his. Um, And his bursts on the scene, and it's very singular. He took a chronicle that was written um, by uh, Andreas of Marchien, who was writing um, a lot of history around the, at the end of the 12th century, and he sort of grafts it onto a history of his monastery. Um, and he includes the charters of the monastery. You know, So what is he doing? And then there's a section in the middle where he bursts out into the first person singular, extended narratives about a legal case that he carried out in, in the the papal court at the beginning of the 13th century. Um, And then he goes back to writing the Chronicle. And you look at this and you say, one, why is he writing it this way? Two, what is he hoping to do? And I have some answers for that. I think that, um, and and I think it's the legal case, uh, that he's providing materials for his monks, If, um, in the event that the case comes back to bite them, comes alive again, so that they have a record that they can draw on. If I looked at a different place, there would be a different answer. I think they're, they're doing it for all kinds of reasons. But I would also say that I'm really also in looking at these chronicles interested in that quality of lived experience um, and the other part of it of course is that when you're dealing with a chronicle that's written by a single person a lot of you know the sort of the more mundane annals are not written by a single person you know so, a different people are sort of jotting things down um, and you sort of wonder why they're doing it and one suspects that at a certain point they wonder why they're doing it because these things just sort of trail off um, you know, it's contact with another person's mind across time. And I'm really interested in those minds. You know, when William is in Italy, um, he gets to see notaries in at work. And most medieval documents in Northern Europe are authenticated with seals. Um, but in going back to Roman times notaries had made, had made documents that had an official character. And he comments on that. He comments on the fact that the documents he's been working with don't have seals. And he says, oh, well, you know, in those days, the early 11th, the early 12th century, you know, only the most important people had seals and sealed their documents. So you shouldn't be surprised. And he said, but, but that doesn't mean that they're not valid, because look at Italy, You know, they have notaries and these notaries create these documents and everybody accepts them as authentic. You know, so it's a if you find a historian who's really interested in the world around you, it's just gripping. I'm not so sure that I'm actually that driven by questions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's beyond wanting to understand this world and to, to reach across time. To somebody who's writing something, and get a better understanding of that person, and through that person, the world that person operates
0: in. Hmm. But you do make arguments. I mean, I've read them. Oh yes,
1: um, of course I make arguments.
0: <laughs> and so, uh, they, they, and I, I'm just—we uh, could take any of the one that you've, any that you've read. But it's just the sort of the recurring question on this um, in this series is um, what, you know, to use something from the, the historical thinking rubric that I used to grade papers with um, what's when you write an argument and it could be any one of your arguments. Uh, what's your awareness of, of limits? Um, what would make you change your mind about one of your arguments I'm, and I, I keep asking this is one of the reasons I'm asking this is that oftentimes I think that social scientists and certainly scientists think that we just tell stories mm-hmm. about things um, pretty stories that um, sort of uh, they, they paper over gaps um, where we uh, historians are spackled between, uh, between uh, historical facts. That's what, that's what history is. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, Rip away the spackle and the, and the drywall remains. And, uh, we really don't do much more than that. And it's impossible to falsify or to, uh, any of our stories. Um, mm-hmm. that's an extreme version, but you hear it. I mean, you've probably heard, mm-hmm. yeah. I've heard it. Um, so what would make you change your mind about one of your arguments? Um, well, the,
1: the The easy answer that any historian would give you is is more evidence. And that's actually what students of history tend to think. We, We change what we're saying when we have more evidence. But often I think what happens is we ask a different question. So historical arguments are answers to questions we're asking about the past. And sometimes the questions are... Factual, did this person actually write this text? Which is something that came up in the Saint and the Count. There's a, a second saint's life that I look at in that text, um, and a lot of people have insisted that even though it was attributed to um, Stephen of Foucher, that he couldn't possibly have, have written it because. Fundamentally, I would say it's too dumb for him to have written written it. Um, that is, there is there is he tells a story that is historically impossible. Um, but um, and in fact, I, I went through and, cre- and and made an argument that he was in fact the uh, the author. Um, And what's interesting is when I was working on this book, um, I had left it up in the air because I wasn't sure. It's attributed, um, what happened is a friend of his says in his obituary, which appears in the chronicle, um, in the friend's chronicle, that he had written a life of a saint called uh, Saint Firmin, And we only have the one life of Saint and People have assumed that, therefore, it's his um, but it's strange in a lot of ways, and people have said, oh, you know, if Stephen had written it, it would be better. Hmm. But um, while the book, I was actually working on the book, somebody contacted me, another scholar, and she said she was interested in sexual temptation in the lives of, um, of saints, and, that, and there is such an incident in... The Life of Saint Fermat, and did I have a translation she wanted to share with her students? And I asked her, okay, where, where, how are you accessing this text? And it turns out she was accessing it from a manuscript. And the manuscript came from the monastery that Stephen's friend, Robert of Torany, was the abbot of. And so a whole bunch of things fell into place, and I was able to say, oh, yes. You know, probably since Robert is the person who tells us that Stephen wrote it and it's in a manuscript from his monastery, (laughs) maybe he he ought to know. Mm -hmm. But uh, so, so there's that sort of thing. But there's also so. But also the work of other historians, sometimes somebody will come at something in a way differently from the way that you have have come at it. And you read their work and you say, Oh, yeah, I think they're right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, and I actually saw that in a review once, um, when I was the associate editor of the American Historical Review. Somebody, and my job was to check, proofread all of the reviews. Speaking <laughs> of tedious work. And, um, the, the, um, and somebody wrote, um, a review in which they, they said, "Oh, you know, this book uh, contradicts what I wrote in my own work. You know, ten years ago, and you know what? This person is right. I was wrong.
0: We should have a plaque to that person who you can't even remember their name now, can you?
1: No, it's yeah. medieval history, which is Chris Wyatt caught my eye. Yeah, it was something yeah. about um, French, um, the French political history. You know the." Uh-huh. Philip the Fair, not Philip the Fair, um, Philip Augustus, I think. But yes, that to say you're wrong, to say you made mistakes, is is a tremendously hard thing for um, for many scholars to do. It's why some people are bad teachers, I have to say. But um, it's that humility that that I don't know the willingness to say I think this is happening but you know that's just a hypothesis and I did that several times in the Saint and the count I don't think that Saint Vitalis who is the subject of the main text that I'm working with was baptized Vitalis you know he has siblings who have all these nice Anglo-Norman names but, I have no evidence whatsoever. you know I have to advance as a yeah. hypothesis. I have to accept the possibility that you know somebody somehow somebody's going to come up with a baptismal record, and yeah, he was baptized Vitalis. you know you just don't know um a lot of things
0: and you have to be and you have to be accepting of that I, I think classicists and medieval historians are better at it because they realize the limitations of their sources. I don't see how a late twentieth century historian could ever it's really hard to have that state of mind it seems to me
1: well i think we can be blinded by by having a lot of evidence and convinced that we understand um yeah we don't have the luxury of an abundance of evidence for the most part um there's new evidence coming out and and that's interesting not in the field that that i work with but Uh um the amount of scientific evidence that's coming out. There is an argument right now about the death toll of the Black death, and the people who work on pollen studies are saying, you know, we're not seeing the changes in the pollen amounts that we would expect if, you know, a third to a half of the population of Europe died. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get into that particular fight at all. But um, there was, until the DNA studies came up, there was a big argument about whether medieval plague was in fact Yersinia pestis. And the DNA that they've that they have managed to dig out of the plague pits has confirmed, oh yeah, it was Yersinia pestis. And then you ask a different question, which is why is the mortality rate so very high in the Middle Ages? When it is much lower, for instance, in the 19th century plague pandemic, which um, a lot of people don't know, but of course came to the United States. I think there were six deaths in Seattle of plague, something like that. And plague is endemic, of course, in the, in, uh, the U.S. also. case. What I was just reading at the time, seven cases a year, but roughly um, and it's treatable by antibiotics, but in the 19th century, they didn't have antibiotics. Why did so few people die of it? And so it spawns new, qu- every time you make a mistake, you know, in some senses, it's the gift that keeps on giving for us as historians, because then you have to ask a different question and you have to understand why you've made this mistake or what this interpretive, um, dead end means. So that's kind of cool, I think. If you're, if you're humble in the face of what you know, you get to ask different questions. You get to find out more stuff.
0: Uh, to wrap things up, I wanted to be certain I went back to something that little breadcrumb you dropped. You said uh, that humility, that people, historians without a sort of intellectual humility and awareness of limits uh, made bad teachers. And I think mean, that's a nice place to... Um, to end this, um, since that combines uh, just about everything that you think about. Uh, So how is it that intellectual humility makes for a good teacher?
1: Well, so our students provide us with evidence all the time of their learning and of their ability to think about things historically Because ultimately, I think that's what we're supposed to be teaching them. We're supposed to be teaching them how to think historically. Um, To the degree that we lecture, we're demonstrating what we know. And we're presenting it as a kind of truth. There's a famous story that's told about Christel de Coulanges, um, and it comes from his obituary, that... um, at the end of his class, his students applauded him and he said, don't applaud me. It's history speaking. Now, I have a habit whenever somebody throws something like that out, a reference to that I want to go and find what was actually said and where it was actually said. So I went and I dug out his
0: literally what I'm actually doing at this very moment because I guess I was trained well. That's that's a historian for you.
1: Yes. So I went and I, I found his obituary and there's something very interesting. That is in the obituary, but the obituary writer goes on to say, but if a student would come to him and say, you know, well, I don't think that's the way things are. His response was, well, you know, you need to go and find the evidence, research it. It's basically an invitation. He invited his students to prove him wrong. And that is just, you know, that is such a different image that we we usually get about him as a historian, you know, inviting his students to come and, and prove him wrong. So that's one way in which teaching and humility come together. But the other way is actually being willing to look at what your students are doing and say, I haven't taught them enough. I ha- they aren't really thinking historically. How can I change what I'm doing in the classroom so that they will get better at this, so that they will learn how to do this with a little more facility. And that means surrendering your position as the person who knows. We've worked so long and so hard. You know, I'm 68 years old, and I started doing this stuff when I was 17. You know, I've been doing it for a long time. (laughs) You know, I'm heavily invested in being the person who knows and yet, if I, if I cling to that, I won't be as good a historian. I won't be as good a teacher. Um, and, I, and I will stop learning myself. And, and I think that's critical. You know, if you stop learning, you might as well retire because you have nothing more to say to the world or to say to your students. Um, And so that humility, I think, is really about being willing to um, to recognize that we're still developing. Um, And so one of the things that Peter Sessions has said, who also writes about teaching and learning in history, is he doesn't like to talk about historical thinking as being comprised of skills. He likes to talk about it as being comprised of competencies because a skill, you learn it and you do it and that's it. A competency is something that you continue to work on and to get better at. Um, and and so as a teacher, I want to continue to learn and to get better at it. Uh, although probably in a few years I will retire and I will stop that learning. But as a historian, I don't ever intend to stop that learning. I want to continue to learn to be better at what I do. And that means looking at what you've done and saying, yeah, you know, it was the best I could do then, but maybe I could do better now.
0: My guest today has been Leah Shopko. She is the author, most recently, of The Saint and the Count. Leah, thanks for once again being part of Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thanks so much to you as well for being a part of Historically Thinking. If you like the podcast, then share it with a friend or many friends. Vivian Lundy is our assistant producer. John Ruddat is our sound engineer. I'm Al Zambone, and I'll be back next week with more history to think about, and to shape the way we think about the present.